Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Morning. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for this reminder today that we have adoption into the promise as heirs through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would remind us of this today and every day. I pray that you would quiet uh, our minds and our hearts this morning as we listen to Joel preach, and just that you would have your way in our hearts and our actions this week. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Michelle. The World Bank is headquartered here in Washington, D.C., and a part of the mission of the World Bank is to promote uh, shared prosperity uh, throughout the global community. So promote shared prosperity throughout the world. And there's lots of ways that the World Bank has partners, uh, even governments of various countries, that they work together to accomplish this. But one is a social safety net that they come into certain situations with a program to promote that prosperity for people who are uh, in the worst financial situations. Not just poverty, and certainly not poverty the way we would think about it here in the United States, but extreme poverty. To use an example from the economist Jeffrey Sachs, extreme poverty is when people live in a place in the world where no matter how hard they work or what training they get or what program they're connected to, there's nothing that they can do by themselves to climb up the ladder of economic success. So Jeffrey Sachs, in his book, The End of Poverty, talks about how, in some ways, you can come into countries and help people take steps up the economic ladder. But in situations of extreme poverty, because of intractable systems, limited opportunities, climate change, 
and the inertia of poverty around them, people can't reach up to even the bottom rung of the economic ladder. So they're in a situation where it's like in New York City where you have those fire escape ladders that are way above the ground. So no matter how high you try to jump, no matter how much effort you put in, you can't even grab on to that bottom rung. And so the World Bank has a program that's designed to not just give advice or some resources, but to actually enter in with ways to lift people up from extreme poverty. And they've been fairly successful. Uh, You can uh, go to their website and find out more. The key here, though, is that when people are in a state of poverty, that there's nothing that they can do on their own to reach up and to begin to move out. The World Bank has a safety net that approaches them, that enters into their life, that connects to their world right where they are to provide them help and lift them up. You may not feel like you can connect to extreme poverty. It's unlikely that most in our area do. But just because you don't have a sense of what it uh, means to be financially impoverished doesn't mean that you're unfamiliar with spiritual poverty. Just because you may not know what it's like to actually go hungry day over day, I mean real hunger, doesn't mean that you don't have spiritual longings uh, for meaning and for connection. Just because you aren't sure what it's like to uh, be lost and no matter what you do or what direction you head, there's just no way you can make financial headway doesn't mean you don't know what it's like or you're not familiar with the reality of being faced with complex decisions where discerning right from wrong feels nearly impossible. And it's into that reality, that spiritual reality of spiritual hunger for connection and spiritual poverty to the point of death, where people are so disconnected from the bottom rung of spiritual vitality that they, no matter how hard they may try, cannot reach up and obtain even that bottom rung. And it's into that situation that Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians because he wants you to know, friends, this morning, that if you have any sense of what it's like to really struggle with the complex moral questions of our day, or what it's like to long and yearn for a sense of connection and community, but no matter how hard you try, you just can't find it. Or to wrestle with the meaning of life beyond just going through the day-to-day and uh, showing up at school or work or whatever uh, occupies your daily responsibilities. Paul is writing into that reality to talk about how God, the almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, has reached down, has met us in our own spiritual extreme poverty, has met us in the reality of our own spiritual death, and has raised us up, not just to that bottom rung of the spiritual vitality ladder, but all the way to the top in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in the passage that Michelle just read from. In Ephesians 1, Paul is opening up almost in poetic song uh, 
A picture as to what God is doing. So that if this morning we can look at the work of the organizations like the World Bank and, and in a sense celebrate and rejoice the uh, successful efforts to lift people out of extreme poverty, Paul's saying, if you can get along with that at all, let me tell you about how God has reached into your spiritual impoverishment and made you alive in Jesus and moreover has lifted you up to the highest rung of spiritual life and vitality and blessing. How much more can we hear that news and sing and shout for joy together? That's what Paul is going after in Ephesians 1. And that's what we are going to look at in two points this morning. God's plan of, or the plan of God's deliverance and the path for our response. So in the opening of verse 3, uh, Ephesians in the first couple of verses kind of opens just in a typical standard first century uh, Greco-Roman letter format. Hey y'all, what's up? It's Paul. This is like typical, this is just how it goes, right? A couple of verses, introduction. But in verse 3 through 14, and we gave you 3 through 10, but if you have Bibles open, that whole chunk of 3 through 14, it's like five different sentences in English, depending on your translation. Uh, there's all sorts of grammar. There's even a paragraph break at verse 10. But in Greek, when Paul originally wrote it, it's just one long chunk, one collective sentence of God's work. It is this poetic expression that rouses the hearts of listeners to see the overflowing grace of God. That's how John Calvin put it 500 years ago. This section of Ephesians 1 is meant to be a starting point of praise for just what God does. So in verse 3, he opens up and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I'm just going to pause here because in this series, uh, we have entitled it United Together in Christ. And really what we've tried to go after here is from a Christian standpoint, it is incredibly important to understand what God is doing in the world through the lens of Jesus Christ who he is, and his work. And so if you're new this morning, and you were just checking out Mosaic, in fact, you're just checking out church for the first time in a long while, and you're trying to figure out, what is this all about? Please hear this. Christianity is about what God is doing in our world through the work of Jesus Christ, and how we you and I, this morning, even right now, are invited to participate in Christ through faith. And so Paul uses this language of in Christ over and over in this section, right? In verse 3, he says he's blessed us in Christ. In verse 5, he says it's through Jesus Christ. If you go down a little bit further, he says that uh, it is uh, through Christ are set forth in Christ in verse 9. And so over and over, not just here in this one small section of Ephesians 1, but in almost all of Paul's letters, he sees our entry point, our being raised up to that top rung as through the work of Jesus Christ and us being united to him. 
And that's what he unfolds here. So he says we are blessed. He says that we are elect, that we are called to holiness in verse 4, that we are adopted into God's family in verse 5, that we have our full redemption in verse 7, that he has summed up all things in verse 10, that we have a share in God's inheritance in verse 11, that we have a hope, a sense of certainty that will never let us down in verse 12. If you have ever tried to start a fire, whether a campfire or in a fireplace or in an emergency situation, wherever it may be, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice, something that I feel like I regularly talk to my kids about. So one way to start a fire is to use small little twigs that catch, they ignite pretty fast and they start going. And you may see a bit of flash and you can uh, pour, well, I won't go there, but basically it can get started pretty fast that way. You always have to be careful, by the way, don't do this by yourselves apart from parental instruction. But that won't be a fire that brings warmth or lasts. So it may kind of flash for a bit. If you throw a bunch of leaves in there, it'll catch and you'll go, wow. But it's a bit more like fireworks. It starts and then it's done. If you're at home and you want a fire that's going to keep you warm on a cold night, or you're camping and you definitely want a fire that's going to keep you warm, then you want to stack together. So you use the smaller stuff to get the fire going, but then you stack together thicker logs. They're going to burn once they get started with substance and that they are going to last. In this paragraph of Paul in the letter of Ephesians, what he's doing is he's stacking theological wood together in a tight pattern to light our hearts on fire for praise for what God is doing. So I know that you go, election, what? Predestined, uh, what? Redemption. We can get to all that in Q&A if you want. But what I want you to take away is this stacking together of theological principles Paul is basically putting wood together for a doxological fire, for a fire of worship, to call to us in the upfront of this letter just what it is that we have in Jesus. Because sometimes we, frankly, can forget. We can think that we made a decision at some point earlier in our lives and like, yeah, 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 Jesus, yeah, got it, check, as if that's all that matters. And Paul here, the one who knew God deeply, the one who authored a significant portion of the New Testament, is writing to focus us on the reality of just what we are a part of in Jesus Christ. That it goes beyond just ourselves and even beyond one point of time. He stacks the theological and spiritual and real-life benefits of who we are and what we have in Christ together to point us to praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There is a sense that just as we oftentimes prepare to go to school 
way before actual school day and school time starts, right? So think during the summertime when the fall's about to start and you're like, hey, I need new school clothes. Mom, dad, or whoever, can I, can I get some money? I need to go school clothes shopping. Why? Because you are thinking ahead to prepare for what's coming down the road. And then that's also true in the mornings when you wake up, some of you, more than 15 minutes before you're supposed to go out the door so that you can hopefully eat some good breakfast, that you could get dressed and brush your teeth and do all the stuff that in a sense is preparing you for the day ahead. And here in verse 4, when it comes to the reality of God's work in our lives, what Paul is communicating is that God has been working on this more than just 15 minutes before Jesus showed up. More than 15 minutes before you thought about maybe what I should believe or how I should function, but going all the way back before the foundation of the world, God was at work on your behalf in Christ Jesus. That is amazing. That is mind-blowing. Can I explain to you exactly how that worked? No, I can't. But what I can do is encourage you and point to the reality that God's grace and his love to you is offered up. And it's not just some flash in the pan for God. It's his idea of grace is not just he's in a good mood and he's just passing and you just happen to ask him at the right time. Here, the case that Paul is making is all of these theological logs have been stacked together by God's design and out of his love for us before the foundation of the world. That is amazing. It is especially amazing if you are tempted to believe that in a moment of despair, that because your life hasn't worked out exactly how you've planned it, or because things are going wrong in your life in ways that you have no idea why, and you think, does God love me anymore? Have I done something, acted in a way, made a decision that has somehow disqualified me from God's love? Paul comes around in this section of praise to speak to you this morning pastorally and say, it can never be. God's love for us has been before the foundation of the world. That's something that is simultaneously, I hope, encouraging and humbling that God loves us with that much forethought. He loves us from the foundation of the world, but calls us, gives us a path of response. And you see that in the second half of verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what we should be Holy, or that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So it's this idea that not only has God loved us and has given thought to his work of redemption before the foundation of the world, but that there is a pathway forward of response, a direction that he is going, a direction toward looking more and more like Jesus, functioning more and more like family members, or as he puts it in verse 4, holy and blameless before him. That's the direction that we walk, the path of our response as Christians. 
God's equipping us for the road ahead. So as Paul is singing of God's plan, uh, because of this all-encompassing redemption of our spiritual lives, uh, it's more than just this past event, and it's more than just what's happening right now. There is a sense of mission or a sense of direction for where this is headed, a pathway for response. This helps us when we're facing decisions about what should I do uh, in, in terms of my life. How should I orient my decisions? How do I figure out right from wrong? Is there a purpose for being? Paul's response is absolutely, 100%. Here is what God's doing in Christ. This is what that means for you individually, sisters and brothers. Consider the alternative for just a moment. In our current cultural moment, it feels like there's a huge push toward freedom. Just be your authentic self. You figure out what that is. Just, just be you without much guidance of how that all works out. And initially, that kind of advice sounds amazing. It's like, yes, I'll take that kind of freedom. I can do whatever I want. But it's kind of like the kid who runs away from home because he's tired of the structure and authority of his parents. So he runs off. And at first, the thought of being his own man is exhilarating. I'm on my own. I can do whatever I want. I can go wherever I want to go until... The realization of the reality of family starts to set in because that young boy hasn't figured out exactly what it means to have a roof over your head and doors that lock at night. That little boy has maybe taken for granted the food in the pantry and the schedule and structure that his parents provide. So that exhilaration can transition very quickly at some point sooner or later to the overwhelming burden of what's upon him. Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, talks about this, uh, and I pulled a quote here for you. If I am my own and belong to myself, the first and most significant implication is that I am wholly responsible for my life. This is both exhilarating and terrifying. Because it's not just that I'm responsible for my personal survival, for food and shelter and so on, but it's that I'm responsible then for the reason for living and the purpose and direction. I need some way to know when I'm failing or succeeding, some way of living ethically and when I'm not. I must have some way of determining on my deathbed that I lived a good, full life. What Paul is trying to highlight here in Ephesians 1 is this reality for us to be cautious about thinking that we can, in a self-determined way, uh, be given full freedom and then be responsible for everything. Paul's saying, ah, you may not want that. Consider God's path for you in response to what he's doing in creation and redemption. And that's what gives us a sense, individually and collectively, of mission. How do I go through life? What is the purpose in life? So if this is one alternative to be free, but maybe terrified with all that comes with it, the opposite would be found in Heidelberg Catechism question one. One of my favorite uh, in the history of the church, creeds and catechisms, one of my favorites. It's this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? 
And listen to this answer, right? So in contrast with the alternative, what is your only comfort in life and death? Heidelberg Catechism question one says, answer that I am not my own. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The Heidelberg Catechism is echoing the reality of not only the great work that God has done for us in our redemption, going back before the foundation of the world, not only what we have here and now through faith in Jesus Christ, but the sense of how that shapes where we're headed individually and as a whole. So what does that mean for you? What are some ways to like work out these hefty logs on the flame of rejoicing and worship? One is that you can never be too far gone to turn in faith to Jesus. That no matter what it is that is in your past, no matter what skeletons may be sitting in your closet, you cannot arrive, nor can your friends, nor can your family members, nor anyone you know, get to a point that somehow places them outside of the scope or capacity of God's redeeming work. That is a comfort for us. That's the flip side of the exhilaration of trying to figure it out all your own is the reality that God has done it all and that not one of us is too far gone. It also gives us a sense of security that God is engaged in our lives here and now. So that in the uncertainty of wars and plagues, which there have been many over uh, the history of the world, that while we can't always see what's what and how things are going to go, we can trust and take God at his word that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is active and working in our lives now. So humility that no one is too far gone and how we think about ourselves and, important, how we think about others Right? That keeps us from a sense of self-righteousness, from this religious superiority. It's this idea that, look, we were all beyond that first rung. And we all turn for God's amazing grace. What we sang about earlier in the service. That we have a sense of security in the midst of uncertain and trying times. And that we can praise God together. Here in Ephesians 1. Paul's reminding us of how God has not only worked in our world, but is shaping our world today. This idea that God reached out to us, the triune God, the Father, sending the Son, acting the Spirit, sealing our lives and our redemption. The World Bank, it boasts of $46 billion in financial assistance, but the Lord has entered in to pay the inestimable cost. You know what I mean. How about this? All right, World Bank, $46 billion. The Lord enters in 
to pay the infinite cost for our sin through Jesus Christ. The World Bank partners with 189 member countries in the world. But the Lord declares that every tribe and nation and tongue will sing praise to God in the new heavens and new earth. The World Bank counts the completion of 12,000 projects. But the Lord counts the completed work of creation and redemption and sealing us through the power of his spirit, not just today, but forevermore. That's the Christian hope in the face of difficult times. Is that, uh, in a sense, we have the unique freedom that comes with living in Christ and God's eternal security, the pouring out of his spirit. That's the Christian hope. That's why Christians, when we navigate our world day in and day out, can do it with a confidence that doesn't stem from our own ability, but turns in song and prayer and trust and delight to the finished work of Jesus Christ. May God strengthen us to be mindful of that reality. Not let it just sit as if we made one decision once or if, yeah, yeah, we do that weekly thing. But in the minute in and minute out, in the hour in and hour out, in the day in and day out, in the week in and week out. Even, I pray for each of you this morning, for the year in and year out, through the ups and downs, may we cling tightly to the resurrected Jesus, secure in him as the hope for our lives and for the world. That's what it means to live as a Christian united together in Christ. Let me pray. God, I ask that you will watch over us this morning. And just thanks for friendship and for uh, connection and for your word and for your table. And the ways in which you lift us up that we can sing your praise. Be with us today and tomorrow and forevermore, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.